Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Phil, I'm not sure if we've shared with our listeners previously about your tent cot. My tent cot? Yeah. You want to talk about my tent cot? Just briefly. I want to talk about your tent cot. So You better you... say that slowly and carefully because I could come out all wrong. Cot. <laughs> if you If you have never seen a tent cot, I recommend you Google it. T-E-N-T space C-O-T. And we bought this after having three gazebos. Screen gazebos. Screen gazebos smash because of your deep desire to sleep outside. I know. I buy the big 10-foot ones, and I put a bed out there. Two got blasted by heavy snow, and then one was by wind, like in a thunderstorm or something. And all the aluminum things that's gnarled up and bent and snow is on my beautiful twin size bed out there. So the one good day. news is very sad. The good news I think news, I'm traumatized. Why are you bring up trauma so early? The good news cuz we're going to talk about recovery and oh, that's a lot what happens after trauma. I don't know if I've recovered yet from that. The tent cat caught <laughs> See, you can't say it. You got to mm. say it carefully. The tent cot has survived, but you haven't slept in it in months. Right. And last night all of a sudden you were kind of huffing and marching around the bedroom and said, I'm sleeping outside. And I thought, did I do something? Why'd you sleep outside last night? I get aggravated with myself. And I was aggravated that I hadn't, I wanted to do other things like take the dog for a walk or empty the truck and get it ready for the weekend. And I just didn't have the energy. And I was sitting in my chair you know, watching Netflix Startup, which is a pretty good show, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I heard owls outside. And Who? Oh, God, Sorry. that's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided I'd like to just nature bathe and My, be outside yeah. and sleep outside. So I did. All right. Well, the good thing about recovery is that I knew to just... Allow you your space. Oh, you were asleep in like 30 seconds anyway. But also the next, this morning I was able to ask you about it. So that shows some progress in our relationship. Instead of assuming it was me, I checked in with you. Yeah, it was nothing about you. But I love hearing how recovery works in people's life. And we have a guest today that's going to share a little bit about that. Yes, we have Mr. Kevin Schuler. Say hello. Hello, everyone. Hey, you have a voice for yeah, radio. Yeah, that's hey, what I was and thinking. A face, and a face for radio. Uh, face no, for YouTube my, and a voice for radio. <laughs> that's my line. I definitely have the face for radio. Mm. You got nice C car gear on. Kevin's got C car gear yeah. on. My first time wearing my C car shirt. Nice. Are you going yeah. to a cleanup today? I am. If you make me. <laughs> I thought you liked to go. I do, but it's supposed to rain, and you said there's not a lot of garbage, and I like a lot of garbage if I'm going to do it. Yeah. But. Can we go back to our guest? We can. So where do you want to start? Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
All right. My name is Kevin Schuler. I'm uh, currently the CCAR Emergency Department Recovery Coach and Manager. I've been uh, blessed with that opportunity about a month ago, so I'm very new in my tenure in that role. Um, I transitioned from an emergency department recovery coach, and um, that experience has strengthened my recovery, and it's really brought a, brought a sense of purpose, a renewed sense of purpose in my life. Um, real quick, I just want to acknowledge you guys for the podcast. I'm privileged to be one of five listeners, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I truly get a lot out of it. I love to play on words. Recovery matters because mm-hmm. recovery matters, mm-hmm. and uh, the production team has been phenomenal. I love the intro. Don Docs, unbelievable. So, uh, <laughs> and it's easier for me to talk about you guys than it is for me to talk about myself, and that has been a going theme in my life. Um, I am originally from Caramo, Connecticut, but if you ask me, I would say I'm from Middletown because it sounded better, and because a lot of my adolescence and uh, young adulthood was spent in Middletown, which I guess we'll get into. Why does, why does, wait a minute. Well, because I if back, I'm, back, back the ship. I'll back up. All back right. Up. Why does Middletown sound so better Middletown, than Cromwell? So Middletown is uh, more urban. Oh, you want to be more urban. I want to be more urban, <laughs> and I wanted to get the perception <laughs> that I had that Middletown grit. Oh, not yeah. that Cromwell soft suburban uh, wow. <laughs> mentality. Okay. So, um, I got and, you. Yeah, and a part of me does have that. Um, Sandy, you're from Windsor. Windsor, yeah. I know. I could have said Hartford. We're right next door. I'm from Manchester. Yeah. Manchester. I like Manchester. So, um, Don, Don Docks, where are you from? Uh, I'm from Dover, New Hampshire originally. Dover. Yeah, <laughs> that, that doesn't sound too, doesn't sound too gritty. gritty. <laughs> Dover does oh, not sound gritty. For New Hampshire, it gets pretty gritty. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But. All right, Mr. Middletown. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll speak a little bit about kind of where I came from. So my maternal grandfather uh, retired as a full colonel in the Army, um, a very noble man. He grew up in Hartford, uh, Frog Hollow area. Um, with nothing, first-generation Russian-American, um, completely built himself a life worth living, um, stayed engaged in the Army, in the reserves throughout the world, well, World War II, Korean War, and then stayed until like the mid-70s. He wow. was a physics teacher, and um, he was a man who I would love to aspire to be like. My maternal grandmother was um, a warm, caring woman who was my primary caretaker, um, for the first five years of my life until she died of breast cancer. And so that death um, produced a depression and probably a stronger drinking habit in my grandfather. And he kind of retreated into the Berkshires where he spent the rest of his life until I was 17 when he ultimately passed. Um, My paternal grandfather was a um, vile human being and there's no no easy way to say it. Um, So he, my father comes from a family of six. They lived in Durham. paternal grandfather was a star athlete. He was friends with uh, a famous Yankees pitcher named Lefty Gomez. He had spring training tryouts for the Yankees. Um, And he abandoned the family and um, uh, took up a mistress and moved to Rhode Island. So that prompted my grandmother with six kids to move to, ironically enough, Charter Oak Terrace, Hartford. So they moved from a beautiful (laughs) home in Durham to Charter Oak Terrace. And that produced, I think... Um, a lot of pain, obviously, my father. And so my father wasn't really equipped um, with any parental skills. And uh, in 1982, um, he hitchhiked up to Cape Cod, Provincetown, where my mother, who was uh, is an unbelievable salt-of-the-earth type woman, 
who went to Quinnipiac Nursing School and would work as a chambermaid in the summers up at Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they met, I believe it was Race Point, which I believe is your favorite spot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, my father asked her out. She said, do you want to take your car or mine? My father didn't have a car. He said, we'll take yours. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so um, two, three months later, I was conceived and thrust into the world in June of 1983. <clears throat> Are you a Race Point baby? I don't know, but <laughs> Cape Cod, baby, I'm sure. Um, so growing up in a home where my mother was um, actively pursuing uh, her, her nursing career, she actually took up a job uh, with the state of Connecticut where she worked for 30 years at the same place where CCAR's first organizing meeting was. And so she worked no in the, yeah, the addiction wow. treatment field. I love um, that. For 30 years, yeah. Um, my father... Uh, was uh, a transient human being. You know, he would, uh, Papa was a Rolling Stone, I think would be his theme song. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but with my grandmother passing away, um, I spent the summers, many of the summers with my father. And so my interaction would be in uh, local pubs here in Harvard, and actually on Weathersfield Avenue. Um, I remember waiting in the parking lot while my father went into high life for a couple hours in the van. Um, there would be a place uh, next to Frank's Bar on the South Zine Highway where veterans would gather and they would drink, and my father would transfer, transport the veterans um, back to the veterans' home, and I would be in the back of a van with six veterans that were, that were drunk, and, and I thought it was cool. And, and I, thought, um, uh, I thought the way that my father lived was the way that a man should live. And uh, unfortunately, there was also a side that um, was difficult for a young child to, to experience, mm-hmm. and... Um, and I grew resentful of my father. Uh, and that resentment is something that I've worked through in my recovery. And he's, he's still alive, and credit to him, he's, he's um, doing the best he can with what he has. But at the time, I wouldn't say that he was. Although he wasn't equipped with those parental skills, mm-hmm. me being a father, I would never, never um, operate the same way that you know, he did. And my mother was, um, was never home. She was working full-time. She was supporting a household. And, I think in an attempt to save the marriage, when I was 10 years old, I had a little sister. So I have a little sister who's 10 years younger than myself. And right around that time, you could see some really profound behavioral changes in me. Prior to that, I, uh, I was in the martial arts. I was an altar boy in the church. I, uh, I loved playing sports. Um, my father would be the parent that would show up to the practice or the game not going to say belligerent, but definitely um, loud. Loud, yeah. What sports? Uh, I played baseball, basketball, and football. And baseball, the big three. Yeah, baseball was one of my favorites until on a ride home from a game, uh, I missed the pop fly. Um, and, you know, rather than my father saying, you know what, Kevin, I saw you missed that pop fly. We're going to work on your outfield skills during the summer. And next time that pop fly comes, you're going to catch it. I was uh, met with... <laughs> how could you miss that pop fly, maybe a smack across the head, and I, and I vowed never to play baseball again because my father loved baseball, and I wasn't going to uh, entertain that you know, uh, it, for him. It, Go ahead. It's interesting. I think so many of us have these moments, like the, whether it's the straw that broke us, but these these particular moments with that. And for me, it was when I came home with my high school regalia and I brought home the silver tassel, which meant I graduated in the top 10% of my class. And my dad said, where's the gold? 
And Phil has a similar sports story with his dad. Yeah, mine was a baseball story, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Little League. Uh, I pitched a no-hitter, and I went three for three with a, from the plate and hit a home run because the games were only six innings long then. Mm-hmm. And we're walking up the hill to my house, and I was filled with pride. And he said, yeah, you played okay, but you walked four batters. Mm-hmm. Because, Absolutely. So uh, I was like, how how good is good enough? What, what is ever right. going to be good enough? And, you know, I'm sure you know baseball when you're tall and skinny and I could really fire a baseball, but I had no idea where I was going, <laughs> you yeah, know, right, a lot right, of right. times. Yeah. But it, we know it's not that that one moment, right? Exactly. It's, it's everything up right. to it, but that's the moment that's like, said, yes. something, switch. something the switch clicks flipped. in your head. The switch flipped, absolutely. Yeah. And then um, from us. So from, was it a ahead. tough pop, pop fly? <laughs> Uh, I think I could have caught it. I should have caught it. You know, it. but it's one of those when they're really high, yeah, you can get disoriented. Yeah, absolutely. Hot flies aren't yeah. as easy nah, as people I, think. The sun was in my eyes. And I yeah. Just, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> I should have caught that ball. My whole life might have changed if I caught that ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was it. Just, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Too funny. But, yeah, in school, I, uh, I, did, I, I did pretty well. But, you know what, I'm, I, uh, I started to get bullied as a kid. And there would be... And you did? Yeah, absolutely. So Because um, you're like, how tall are you now? Well, I was a very small, skinny kid. I was like emaciated. I was kind of a runt for a long time, up until high school. Like junior year of high school wasn't until I started to grow, really. Wow. Yeah, So, um, but I was still tough. I still had some grit, and I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you that. It's because you're um, from Middletown. Well, <laughs> yes, but this was in Cromwell. And so um, socioeconomically we were you know below the uh, middle class and um and i think and kids could be nasty and kids mm-hmm. could be mean and kids um you know made it their job to um really push me and uh i wouldn't fight back for some reason i would i would i wouldn't fight back it, I would, it was just something within me where i wouldn't fight back and um and then i'd go home and my father said if you don't fight back well you know um you're gonna deal with me and uh, I was pulled out of that school, and I went to uh, a Catholic school in Middletown. So it was a change in culture. It was more of a diverse population. And um, in that Catholic school, I, uh, I, I, I could have excel- excelled. And when I applied myself, I did well. But again, there was something within me that would, um, I wouldn't ever give it my all. Because if I gave it my best and I, and I failed, then I would feel like a failure. It would be easy for me, easier for me not to try at all. Hmm. Um, and that was kind of uh, something that continued in with me into my adulthood. <clears throat> but um, I made it to a Catholic high school, an all-males Catholic high school in Middletown, Connecticut, where um, I rebelled. And let me back up. Uh, at 10 years old, I found substance. And it wasn't like a cool drink like Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill, or a uh, screwdriver uh, because the orange juice. Listen. <laughs> he does listen. Because the, because the orange juice would be healthier. Yeah. It was your classic See. Budweiser bottle at ten years old. And I did have um, a group of friends that were a little bit older than me, so you know they embarked on that, you know, uh, mischievous behavior earlier than I did. And um, in this Catholic high school, there was again there was more of a disparity with economics and uh, my relationship with my grandfather. So here was a man who, if I um, really modeled and if I really embraced the philosophy that he lived a very disciplined noble righteous man and I don't say that lightly um, my life would have changed but he wasn't around and he was and I he was accessible but he wasn't around and he was dealing with his own pain that 
that he was living with. I don't know what he went through in World War II or the Korean mm-hmm. War, growing up in poverty. His father had a mental illness, jumped out of a window, and spent the rest of his years in the sanitarium. And they had to tell the family that the father died. Um, and it was tough, man, for them. I could, I can imagine. Um, and my father held on to his uh, victim mentality, and he was wronged, and his father abandoned him. And it's something that he dealt with for a long time. And um, and probably still does to this day. And I had a cu- uncles that moved to California and another uncle who unfortunately succumbed to alcoholism and passed away. Um, so I guess I was searching for like a male role model for a long time. And there was, there was men that came into my life, especially in that Catholic high school, because th- I had some disciplinary issues. And, and, um, <laughs> at, fo- and at 14, issues. absolutely. <laughs> at 14, I started smoking uh, marijuana. And um, what I'll say about marijuana is it made my life completely unmanageable at the age of 14. You know, that was my sole focus. Now, uh, schoolwork wasn't a priority. Sports was off the table. And it was, I'm going to chase this uh, because it allowed me to fit in. John Hamilton says what? Uh, people use drugs because they either want to feel good or feel better. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to feel good about myself because I didn't. But I found a niche in um, dealing with... Uh, people in my high school who came from uh, places of means and money, I was able to uh, sell marijuana in the high school. And uh, and it kind of gave me, I guess, maybe a little bit of status. And I felt kind of cool, but I failed out of high school, and I was politely asked to leave <laughs> after my junior year. And so I went to a public high school in Cromwell. And that is where my addiction exploded. Uh, because now I came from an environment where it was almost like a military school, all boys, Catholic, very focused on morality to a place where people were smoking cigarettes in the bathroom or marijuana in the bathroom and I could and there was girls and so um, I garnered maybe a little bit of attention and by this time I'd kind of grown and um, and I thought that I was somebody that uh, (laughs) I wasn't really and um, I terrorized that high school my senior year it was it was bad I owe amends to a multitude of people it was extremely uh, terrible. No, no easy way to say it. Um, and I don't know what it was. I mean, I would, I would get completely hammered into class uh, with a bottle of Pepsi filled with Johnny Walker. And I had a teacher who, prior to my senior year, I would hang around some older kids, was at a social function where she was, and she was drinking, with, and younger kids were there. So her career would be in jeopardy if I ever said anything. And here I come in her class. And so she was like filled with fear and she couldn't discipline me because I had this holding over her head. And uh, I feel extremely terrible about that. But um, 2001, I, uh, I walked into a supermarket to get a job. And I met a man who would profoundly change my life. And um, I didn't know it at that time. But I held on to this job and you guys want to ask any questions? Am I rambling? No, What's going you're on? Okay. You're telling the story. Okay. I'm listening to the story. So um, I held on to that job, and I worked, and I, and I worked hard. And, um, and, and people took notice of that. But I still, you know, obviously um, had other priorities. And um, at 19, cocaine was introduced to me, and that is where uh, my entire world changed. And I used cocaine for the first time with a, with a close friend. And when I did it, I saw my – I saw um, – a social lubricant that would allow me to really be this person that I wasn't, and um, and he saw dollar signs, and so uh, he had 
the means to sell it, and I was kind of selling marijuana. So my addiction progressed with more substances available. And um, I was really absent from the home. <clears throat> but I would retreat back to my mother's house quite often. Um, and she uh, was trying to take care of a young daughter. And my father, um, there was just no good interaction there between him and I. I was a very, very uh, indignant, just rebellious kid. Um, but I continued to work in this supermarket, and um, this uh, the owner's son uh, um, took notice of me, and he wanted to kind of take me under his wing because he also struggled with addiction in in the past. Mm-hmm. And he could see I was going down this road, and he was maybe in an attempt to kind of clear his conscience, or maybe just because he was a good person. He said, let me try to help this kid out. And we had honest, real discussions and conversations about my substance use at that time and it was growing and it was progressing and it was starting to affect other areas of my life obviously and um i was introduced to opiates at uh, the age of 21 and it was that was about 2004 and so with the, um the prevalence of prescription pills such as oxycodone and oxycontin it was they were really easy to access and they were extremely addictive and this man also developed a taste for them as well and so now our relationship changed from him trying to uh, help guide me until he was in it with me, and and I was um, an asset to him. And um, how much older was he? Than twenty you? years. Twenty years older. Than me. Twenty years uh-huh. older. And what did you do at the grocery store? <clears throat> so I initially started working in the butcher shop in the mm-hmm. meat market. Um, that was my first job, and and it, I liked it. I loved it actually. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. I love learning about different cuts of meat, mm-hmm. and um, and I, I don't know. Um, I, I actually, I had a period where I left that store and I went and I worked for, with a family member, with a cousin in a construction business. And I completely, um, my substance use completely, uh, destroyed that opportunity because mm-hmm. I crashed his truck, uh, while I was smoking a joint. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was my last day. Sorry. <laughs> Probably shouldn't be laughing. But, yeah. That was my um, last day. And, wow. um, fast forward, my cousin and I. I haven't spoken in five years because of uh, a situation maybe we'll discuss later on. But back into the, the supermarket with this gentleman who um, him and I are now uh, using together. I am um, getting a, an exorbitant amount of pills for this guy. And I am my addiction is also progressing. And he says this is wrong. This is wrong. Kevin is taking a turn for the worse. And I'm partly to blame i'm culpable in this situation he had experience with a 12-step fellowship and he said i'm going to take you to a meeting and um in the parking lot that first meeting i i i agreed because i said well listen i don't like what i have now (laughs) you know this is this is not sustainable Mm -hmm. um especially with the physical dependence that came along with opioids i walked into that first meeting and and um i that we talk about seeds of hope um, that is where I got the message of hope, and, uh, and I saw people that were um, seeming to be happy, and, and they shared stories that I could identify with, and um, I don't remember too much from that first meeting other than I was willing to go to my second, and, uh, and I embraced that change, and I went to my first treatment center, and they allowed me to take a leave of absence, and here I am at 23 years old with an opportunity to completely redirect the trajectory of my life, embrace this process of recovery, and have like this life beyond my wildest dreams, <laughs> potentially. That's what they told me. But 
It wasn't that easy. And I experienced a tremendous amount of pain in my attempts to uh, redefine um, what recovery looked like for me. <coughs> um, so. Uh, Where'd you end up going? For my first treatment center? Yeah. Rushford. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was one of uh, nine stays in Rushford. In Middletown. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In Middletown. Yeah. So um, actually, I went to Rushford, and then I went to a halfway house called Stonehaven yeah. um, after a second attempt of getting clean. And so that was where I really was able to find some sustainable change. I went through, like, that initiation of, of um, recovering, getting the toxins out of my body, and just really being able to manage my emotions and get some education about addiction and, and – um, and really get some hope that, like, wow, I can do this. I can stay clean. Mm -hmm. And I went to a, a halfway house where it had some structure, but it also had um, a little bit of freedom, and I was able to uh, live life of, or try to find a new way to live. And um, Lou, the gentleman, his name's Lou, uh, was, you know, always kind of, he was always in the picture, you know, and he was an encourager. He was a coach. He was a great coach. Mm -hmm. However, he couldn't get out of his own way. And so, um, so he's still using opiates. At he's this still point. using okay. opiates, yeah. And uh, and I, I don't think he really ever stopped. Um, but he would um, be able to. I don't. I don't even know if there's such thing as like a functioning addict. But he would able. He would be able to handle some of his responsibilities. And you know, it was one of those situations where it was no secret that mm -hmm. this guy had issues with addiction, and it was no secret that him and I were together. But there was nothing anybody could do about it because he was owner of the store, and he was great at what he did. Um, so, uh, time goes on. It's 2010, and uh, I got my first introduction to a multiple pathway. And uh, it's, it's something that we could probably talk about for a few hours, but uh, I'll give you the short, condensed version. Um, Lou and I were using heavily together, and there was always a sense of being able to change. And um, he was willing to make an attempt to really do what it took to embrace recovery. And so um, his family found this treatment center based on his previous attempts at a 12-step Mm -hmm. um, tr disease model treatment center. They wanted to find something different, mm -hmm. and they sure did. So I found myself in Canadian, Oklahoma, at a, a facility, and I won't name the name, but uh, it was based on the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard, and it was a Scientology-focused treatment center. And it was something that um, they had a great pitch. They said, um, are you happy with the current conditions of your life? No, my life's in the gutter, right? Um, do you find it difficult for you to communicate how you're truly feeling? Yes, absolutely. Do you find it difficult to control yourself in any type of environment? Absolutely. Um, do you want to change? Well, we have a method in which you can change. And then they had this new life detoxification program. And so what they believed is that drug residuals are stored in your fatty tissues. And what happens is if you, you'll hear a story of a guy who is six months sober, he starts working out, and then he goes off the rails, he relapses. Have you heard that story? Yeah, absolutely. I heard of it a thousand times. Well, we have a program designed to rid your body of those toxins, and you're going to sit in a sauna for five hours a day, 20 minutes in, 10 minutes out, for about 40 days straight. And when you're done, you will no longer have those toxins that produce cravings. And you will be able to live a competent life without the use of drugs. And um, this you ever heard of that? Uh, 
Not to this detail. Oh, wow. So it, it gets it gets deeper. So um, the withdrawal process, they don't believe in any, any type of medication, uh, not aspirin, not Motrin. Um, so withdrawing off of opiates. And by this time, my disease had progressed to IV drug use. Um, uh, I, I detox with um, vitamins. That's what they do. They put you in a, in a setting and they say, well, the reason why you're experiencing these withdrawal symptoms is a depletion in vitamins and in your body and we're gonna overload your system with, with vitamins and we're also gonna give you a drink called CalMag, which is calcium, magnesium, and vinegar and it's gonna help clean you out. And we're gonna and we're gonna and when it's over, it's gonna be over. And so uh, I did it. Twelve days, um, cold turkey detox. It was painful. I'm in the woods in Canadian Oklahoma. This place was on a um, uh, state park called uh, Arrowhead State Park, and it was located on the second largest man-made lake in North America. Is, um, your, is your guy with you, too? My guy was with me, and then he bailed. He said, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> he bailed. But we, <laughs> well, we stayed. Did we, he get through the detox? He, 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 got, he wanted to do the sauna portion, <laughs> and so we stayed for, he stayed for six weeks. But yeah. he paid for me to, t- to take part in this treatment center. Uh, at least he, uh, he assisted in the deductible. Wow. And he said, Kevin, you stay. I want you to stay, see this thing through. I said, I'm out of here. I'm not. If you're leaving, I'm leaving. So uh, at his six weeks, we got two plane tickets, and we bailed out of there, and we went to Hartford, Connecticut. And um, I was using within an hour. And, uh, and I overdosed. With, within an hour? Within an hour off the plane I'm using. And I just said, this place was like, it was so cultish. It was like an alternate universe. They have different vernacular and nomenclature, and they talk about... Um, all types of different uh, methods that were just crazy to me, foreign to me. But there was like 200 people at this facility, and I had formed some strong friendships. And so uh, ultimately I made a decision that (laughs) this situation in Hartford with Lou was not healthy, and let me see if I could get back to that treatment center. And I did, and I went back there, and I said, you know what? I'm going to stay open-minded. Um, I know that being clean and being in recovery is better than what I, the way I was living. So why not see, see if this thing will work? And, uh, and I embraced it. And actually, um, I don't know if I completely, I didn't embrace the ideology, but I embraced the idea that I could live a life without drugs that wasn't confined to a church basement and a cold metal chair with bad coffee for the rest of my life. And that recovery could look like something else. And um, there was people there who, you know, just, I don't know, I, I hate to say, oh, 12-step didn't work for me, but you heard that a lot, right? And, uh, and I, I like to say maybe 12-step didn't work for you, but I believe it can work for anybody. <clears throat> However, I embraced this multiple pathway. And um, I stayed there, and I had a girlfriend, and it was, it was all good. I was going um, to make a new home. And, in uh, Canadian Oklahoma, and I had some great barbecue down there as well. Great brisket, <laughs> yeah, and I went noodling too. And do you know what noodling is? The fish. Oh yeah, Ooh. catch catfish with your yeah, hands. You put your hand, your hand in a hole and let it bite you. That's not yeah. fun. <laughs> it was so exciting. Uh, I don't think it, I don't think that was great. You would do it. Yeah. No, I would. You definitely would do it. He would do I, it. I'm not so <laughs> sure. If you saw him do it, you would do it. Maybe, but yeah. I'm not so sure that there's always an alligator. Uh, I was going to say alligator, but there's, I'm not always so sure there's a catfish, catfish. in there. So it ended pretty snapping turtle. Oh, yeah. Oh, it could be a snapping turtle or an alligator gar. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, those things. Not, yeah. Those are not. Or yeah. snakes. Snakes, absolutely. Definitely. It was terrible. Yeah. Had, yeah. It was, uh, it was. Did you get any? I got one. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's fun. My first and only. 
<laughs> that's, that's enough right there. Yeah. So did that's that, where recovery, recovery that, led good. you to stick in your arm in a hole Absolutely. and hope for the best. Yeah, <laughs> hey, listen, uh, law streams awaken, right? New, new possibilities arise, I said. This is, well, let me try to embrace um, doing something different. Mm-hmm. There you go. And, um, and very quickly, I noticed that there was people. Oh, so they believe also that uh, you can drink in moderation. And that if you're not drinking to quell any kind of emotional pain, then you can have the ability to have a drink. And a little liquor will go a long way is the exact quote that comes out of the book. The program is designed with um, like eight books, course rooms. They don't call people patients or clients. They call them students. You're learning how to live a new life. And they had different types of training techniques to allow a person to control themselves, communicate, and um, effectively and confront areas of their life that they were unable to confront in the past. Um, So, you know, it it sounded good. But I came to the end of the program, and they offered me an opportunity to stay on. And they said, you know, that many of the staff were former students, and so uh, we'd like you to stay, Kevin. And it's the first time anybody really wanted me to stay somewhere. I was always asked to leave. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, all right, let's do it. But I took that drinking um, ideology, and very quickly I realized that a little liquor could kill me, <laughs> and um, and it almost did. I, I, uh, I, I ended up leaving there um, abruptly, after a uh, experience in which I uh, found myself in Dallas for an extended period of time, and uh, I was using cocaine with a, a friend of mine, and I said, you know what, that Scientology thing isn't for me, and, uh, and I left. I came back to Connecticut. It's 2011, and um, Lou's father uh, welcomed me back into that store. His name was also Lou, and, and here was a man that uh, for he didn't have to, but he he chose to give me a second chance and a third mm-hmm. chance and a tenth chance, and and I would, I'm forever indebted to him for that. Time goes on, and I find myself unable to really um, sustain recovery. I would do great in treatment centers. I went to a multitude of treatment centers. I could write a tour book of treatment centers in Connecticut, um, and tell you which had the best food, which had the best clinicians, um, and you know it was. Clinician said to me, said, Kevin, you're institutionalized because you do so well in a structured environment like treatment, but once you leave, mm-hmm. you fall on your face every time. And he was right. Um, and, I, you know, and I love the philosophy of recovery community centers and recovery coaches being those physical therapists that are there after the initiation of recovery. Mm-hmm. And if I had embraced that, and I'll back up, I was exposed to CCAR in 2009. And I saw in an interview, Phil said, I didn't find CCAR. CCAR found me. Mm-hmm. Well, it completely found me in the form of outreach. And a gentleman who I just saw about a half an hour ago came into that treatment center. And um, he was loud, and he was telling jokes, and he was, you know, he was screaming his clean time. I got two years, three months, and nine days clean. And uh, he was promoting CCAR, Recovery Community Center. And he was saying, hey, listen, you want to sign up? We'll have somebody give you a call when you get out of here. It'd be a point of contact, somebody that can help sustain your recovery. Who is that, Tyrone? That was my friend Tyrone. (laughs) It sounded like Tyrone. Oh, yeah. And and then Tyrone saw me the next year. And he said, Kevin, what are you doing? (laughs) And then he saw me the next year. And he said, well, you you might want to change, buddy. And uh, and he saw me (laughs) multiple times. So, um, uh, I guess I'm kind of all over the place, but uh, 
In 2015, Lou Jr. got sick, and um, and I was in treatment again. And prior to this, Lou told me, Kevin, I can't help you anymore. And he felt so um, terrible and probably shameful that um, he had a hand in my addiction. And, and, and accepting personal responsibility and recovery is a principle I definitely try to apply, and so today I don't blame him at all mm-hmm. for the decisions that I made. But he got sick, and he was in the hospital, and he was... Um, and he went on life support. And he was on life support for about 11 days. And he came off. And he was lucid. And I said, I got to see this guy. And so I went to his hospital room. And um, he was a shell of himself. He was emaciated. And I said, I'm going to sit here every day with you. And I'd go there and I'd play music. And he couldn't even feed himself. And I would feed him. And I would just sit there with him. And, um, and I was four months in recovery at the time. And... Uh, I stayed with him for 40 days every day, and he looked and he was progressing, and he was getting better, and he he was going to have a new lease on life. He's going to have another opportunity to embrace recovery, and unfortunately, um, very suddenly, he passed away. And uh, I was in a community back at that treatment center, Stonehaven, with a supportive recovery community around me that embraced me and lifted me up, and I saw the value of support. Mm-hmm. then I could walk through pain and I could walk through difficult situations without the use of substances. Unfortunately, consistency and application of that knowledge has always been a struggle for me. And I picked back up um, and I found myself in that exact hospital bed room that he was in six months later <sighs> after um, an overdose, and a, a severe overdose at that. I, um, I was narcan and when I came to, I tried to stand up and I collapsed, and my leg um, was non-functioning. And so they brought me into the hospital, and they said, you've uh, got a condition called rhabdomyolysis. And what rhabdomyolysis is is something that's kind of prevalent in, like, ultramarathon runners or crossfitters. It's when there's extreme stress on a muscle, and that muscle will release a protein called myoglobin, and that myoglobin will negatively impact your kidneys and it could shut down your kidneys and you have renal failure and on top of that i also had a mitocardial infarction mmi which is a heart attack at um 31 years old um because as john schwartz's um favorite taste of substance was also mine and uh cocaine and heroin was a combination that i saw after you know every day um i stayed in the hospital for like three weeks and this was in 2014, and um, members of the recovery community, because I had a footprint in, in the rooms, right? I'd been in and out so many times, and I'd, I'd been objectified by sponsors, and and, um, and I rebelled against being told what to do, and so maybe that's part of the reason why I struggled. Um, but I recognized I had enough evidence to, to say that if I didn't embrace recovery, I wasn't going to have much of a life. And again, I, I, I think I, I, I was existing without ever truly living up to that point. And um, I embraced recovery. And I, I, took it, I took it on with everything that I had in 2014. And, um, and my leg got better, and I, it was actually almost 100%. I met a girl um, a couple years couple years into recovery maybe a little less than that and she was also in recovery and um it was a relationship that was a healthy one and it's probably the only healthy relationship I'd ever really been in and um it was Christmas of 2016 and um my uncle 
who I talked about that passed away from alcoholism was found dead and I also had a close friend who passed away from an overdose back to back and it was another difficult emotional situation and the insanity is I would return or I'd seek out the same substance that had killed people that I love mm. and I did that repeatedly and so I used and I relapsed and I was in the hospital again with us with another myocardial infarction and um and Stacy who was my girlfriend at the time she came into the room and um she said I'm here I'm staying here and she also said I'm pregnant and um I had just relapsed and I know that I had woken up that beast inside of me and so that fear that I will never be able to be a father that I esteemed to be like um, and Lou's father Lou had passed away Lou's father had taken on a whole new role in my life and he embraced me as a second son and um, and he and, and he encouraged me and he gave me a job and, and I made a commitment to ultimately get clean and I found myself in Florida in a treatment center with Billy Losiah Bratt as my clinician connection we're all I don't know it's a divine connection here mm-hmm. that I, I can't explain and I don't think I need to um, and I became a father, and I held this little girl uh, six months and maybe four or five months in re- recovery. And I and I told this little girl, and I made a promise to God that I will never ever abandon this child, and I will um, do everything in my power to be the best father I can be. I finally had a sense of purpose. Um, hmm. It was an experience that um, I'm sure you guys can identify with, mm-hmm. um, and it was something that gave me. Uh, a catalyst to change um, or and to sustain my recovery um, fortunately four months later um, with no excuses I made a decision to pick back up again and this time when I picked up I didn't wake up the Narcan me and I didn't wake up and I woke up maybe four days later intubated with a tube down my throat and my mother in my ear saying, Kevin, do you hear me? Kevin, do you know what happened to you? And I couldn't talk. All I could do was nod my head. And um, ultimately, they took the tube out of my throat. And that condition, rhabdomyolysis, that I had a few years before, I experienced again, but this time it was five times magnified than what I had experienced. And your kidney function is gauged by CK levels. And um, an average CK level is in between like 20 and 150 or something. I'm off there. Somebody will correct me. But mine was 200,000 CK level. And, um, you know, there was complete renal failure. But I didn't care because I could not move my legs. And I couldn't sit up and I couldn't move my arm because rhabdomyolysis makes your muscles so rigid and excruciatingly painful that they don't function. And I literally couldn't move. And um, ultimately, I just said, if this is the way it's going to be, then I just don't want to be here. Um, and it, my sponsor came into the room, and he was trying to prepare my family for a bedridden individual if I even made it out of that. When I was, when I was intubated, um, a doctor had told my mother that 90% of the people that experience the level of organ system failure that your son has do not make it. And so my mother being told that, you know, prepare yourself, that if he does make it, he's not going to be the same person that you know. Hypoxia was something that I experienced. And so there was um, a real concern about cognitive um, decline and, and deficits. And, and I couldn't speak because when they pulled the tubes out of my throat, obviously it damaged um, my vocal cords. It was really garbled and, and uh, raspy, and nobody could understand me. And I was in this excruciating pain. And um, 
I didn't even, and I and I had nobody to blame but myself. And I laid in this bed, and and there would be, and I found a, a oh my God, a piece of compassion with a nurse, uh, nurse's aide who would sit with me, and she was feeding me ice chips because I couldn't have water, and she treated me like a human being. And she didn't, and there was other nurses and other doctors that came in, and and I could tell that I was being harshly judged. <clears throat> And I also was very difficult to deal with because I was in excruciating pain. Mm. And they wouldn't give me much pain medication because of the renal failure. And so I, I kind of had to deal with it. And I was placed on dialysis. And the prognosis was long-term dialysis, extreme deficits in my, in my, my walk, if I'm ambulatory at all. I was told that I'd walk with an uh, assistive device, um, adaptive device, I'm sorry, for probably the rest of my life, if at all. Um, and I stayed in ICU for a couple of weeks and the days I had like family members come in and, and Stacy would come in and now my daughter's, um, six months old and, uh, I wouldn't want to see, I didn't want to see her. Um, and the nights were the most difficult because there was really nobody there and I was in this excruciating pain and, and I really uh, had to do some soul searching and, mm-hmm. and, and, and really, uh, take a look at where my level of faith was and take a look at where um, I, how I was going to deal with this new way of life and um, people from the recovery community consistently came into that room and again I was unable to walk or move my legs um, my mother was in there every single day and um, I couldn't even drink water for like two weeks and I had a feeding tube in my stomach which I think you can identify with and um, finally I had progressed to the point where they were going to transfer me to a rehabilitative hospital and this is and I'm a believer that our lives change through a combination of events and people that come into our lives Mm -hmm. over a period of time and I remember being pushed out of this hospital on a gurney for the first time in a month and it was a bright sunny day and I could smell the fresh cut grass and I could feel the sun on my skin and the lights and colors were vibrant and I felt alive. I felt alive and I wanted to live. And um, prior to that, excuse me, uh, my daughter's mother finally brought my daughter into to my bed and placed her on my lap and I looked at this little girl and, and I made a decision right there and then that I was gonna do whatever it took to be a father that um, she could be proud of and a man that I could be proud of. And whatever that looked like, whether or not I could walk, was irrelevant. And I went into that rehabilitative hospital, and, and I made a comment to Phil um, a couple of days ago that physical therapist saved my life. And I don't say that lightly, because I was in this hospital bed, and these two younger women came in, and they were not playing around. They said, <laughs> come on, you know, we're going, and, and, and really tested me. And um, my first day there, you know, I had to be transported with a hoist in the, in the um, Middlesex Hospital. And um, when I was at this real rehabilitative hospital, they just lifted me up. And I stood up for the first time, and it was agonizing pain. My muscles felt like they were ripping and in excruciating pain, and they were just so rigid and stiff, and I was so weak. And I could only stand up for a couple of seconds, but I, I stood up. And after about a week, I was able to take a first step with a walker. A chaplain had came into my room during this time, and he had said to me, Kevin, uh, God's a healer. Hmm. And at that point in time, I really didn't want to hear much about God, but I said, if, why wouldn't God heal me? And he said something that will stick with me for the rest of my life. He said, maybe God is healing you. 
Maybe the decisions that you were making in the life that you were living was going to kill you, and this is an opportunity for you to redirect your life. And um, and perspective really came into play because um, there's a lot of people that had much worse uh, situations than me. Um, but I was still so stuck in my own pain and my own self-centeredness. Um, I stayed in the hospital for about a month, and multiple times Lou Sr. came in to my room, and uh, and he encouraged me. And he was with me when uh, I was told that I wouldn't walk and that my, my leg wouldn't improve and wouldn't be functioning. <clears throat> and I thank God that he was because <laughs> it was a tough pill to swallow. <sighs> but... Recovery capital planning, you know, was something that was embarked on. You know, guys came in and they came up with a battle plan for me. And I had a walker, and I finally was um, walking with the assistance of a walker. And I, and I walked into that first meeting, uh, one of the largest meetings in the state. And I'd always had a, something about me where I was overly concerned with people's opinion of me and being in the condition that I was completely emaciated uh, it, with a walker, everybody knowing kind of what happened to me I had to let that let go of that because mm -hmm. had to save my uh, life and um, can't save your life in your face at the same time sometimes <laughs> you say right <laughs> Ooh, I like that mm -hmm. and so I, I, I walked into that meeting and with the walker and I got up and I got the newcomer chip mm -hmm. key tag and um, I said I'm going to commit to this with everything that I have and prior to that, I had, start, I had a goal, I had a personal goal to go back to school. And I started that process back in like 2014, 15. Um, and I was close, I was really close. And it was just, it was a personal goal, it wasn't anything that I knew if I, I would make a career out of, but there was, there was nothing I could really do. I, would, I was in physical therapy every single day for about six months and I finally had progressed to where I could walk with a cane. And I said, I'm gonna finish this up. And so I went back to school um, for a degree in human services, and there was a need for uh, internship. And um, Tyrone came back into my <laughs> consciousness, and I said, you know what? I'm going to go to CCAR, and I'm going to try to do this internship. And I, and I had abandoned the cane, and I was walking with a brace, and I limped into CCAR, and I met with a volunteer coordinator, and I started volunteering. And I started going to CCAR, and I celebrated a year clean a car and I was embraced and it was just like sanctuary and about I lived a fear-based recovery for a long time and part of the reason probably why I want to go to CCAR is because of Harford is a place that I associated with my addiction because it was the place where I copped and mm -hmm. I there was times I mean I'm grazing over periods of homelessness and unable to um no resources, and I would walk past CCAR on my way to go comp, and I wouldn't look at the at the at the recovery community center, and I would be jealous. I would get angry that there was people in there that didn't have to live the way that I lived. That um, had somehow um, been able to uh, redirect their lives, and how come I couldn't? And recovery wasn't possible for me. Was the mentality that I held on it, and I tried so many times, and. Um, when I walked in as in a different capacity as a volunteer, uh, I embraced it. I, re I truly did, and and it almost I almost felt safe and protected. I felt safe and protected there and um, in my recovery and in Harvard. Mm. And I graduated. Um, I got that degree that I sought after, and it was like really one of the first things that I really completed to uh, you know. Um, and I felt 
I felt validated in my efforts today. I could walk through an unbelievably difficult situation, and I could stay disciplined and work towards a goal, and I could complete the goal, and um, that would be something to be proud of, and I could be a man of substance rather than a man controlled by substance. Mm-hmm. And um, my little daughter uh, became my shining um, star motiva- motivator. But there were still some, uh, obviously, difficulties with uh, her mother. Now, and if I look at it from her perspective, like um, Stacy was in a position where she's got this guy that she had a kid with that can't stay clean. He's completely using. She's in recovery. She had been clean for about 10 years at that point. <sighs> you know, um, really no stability in, in, in my existence. And how could she, you know, she trust that I would be a, a father that my daughter Mina deserved? And so she lived with a family member, and, and I just pressed on. I just pressed on, and I said, the only way that I'm going to be able to prove to her that I'm ch- changing is by actually living it and doing it and, and putting one foot in front of the other, and I focused on myself. And I don't know. Um, Bill White, I think he's given a definition of recovery as enhancement in global health, and right? So my emotional health, my relational health, my occupational health, my physical health. And so I really put focus on all those areas and try to build myself up and, and change that. Which he, he talks about the drug-person relationship and um, change that relationship that I had with drugs. It was no longer my comforter. It was something that um, uh, I could put behind me and, and, sh- and give hope to others that, like, if I could stay clean and I could recover, then I believe anybody could. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I did, and I am. I'm staying clean, 100%. Now, uh, here's where uh, I got most gratified in my recovery was when a a job posting opened up uh, for emergency department recovery coach. Now, I I had heard of this because I had overdosed in Harvard Hospital multiple times, and I'd been revived. Yeah, we got to – I did that. I just – you say that so casually, like I, yeah. I overdosed multiple times. Multiple times. I know. Well, yeah. How many is multiple? Would you uh, guess? I've been revived by, with Narcan at least six times. Um, I've been, that's I've, what I'm shaking yeah, my head about. Yeah. I'm just I've, um, yeah, kind of like making my head kind of go. I can't minimize that. You're right. I, I right. shouldn't minimize that. That like my life had been saved by six different inv- individuals on multiple times. There had there's been reasons that I can't explain why I'm still here. I. Um, used while driving on 91 South and flipped a Jeep multiple times, been saved by EMTs who came in and revived me. I'd been saved by a police officer who smashed a window, crawled into my car, and um, kept me breathing until the ambulance can arrive and uh, uh, administer Narcan. Um, and, and we'll hear disparaging comments about Narcan even, that Narcan enables the addict. It gives them, you know, the safety net to use. And, and Narcan enabled me to live enabled me to breathe, but it didn't enable me to use, right? It gave me another opportunity to recover. Our buddy TJ said this, and I just got so much. He said uh, about Narcan, it's like we can't get into recovery without a heartbeat. Mm, Absolutely, without a doubt. So um, I'm extremely grateful for uh, the first responders and the people who have administered Narcan to me and saved my life. Um, Do you see the equipping? Like, it's easy for me, right? Uh, We really just met each other today, other than a brief acquaintance. Mm -hmm. The equipping throughout your entire life 
to be that emergency department recovery coach, yeah. it's extraordinary. Yeah. Acknowledgement of multiple pathways of recovery, mm-hmm. the experiences that you had with so many treatment programs, mm-hmm. feeling what it feels like to be treated like garbage mm-hmm. by medical professionals Absolutely. who are there to, I mean, you, you have been equipped yeah. throughout each phase of Absolutely. your journey just for what you're doing today. Unbelievable. And, and, and I had heard about emergency department recovery coaches, but I never had interface with one. Mm-hmm. And I had overdosed, and I, what would happen was I would be stabilized, and then I would be discharged with a piece of paper with some detoxes, and I would be thrust back into the same environment mm-hmm. that I just came from and that I just used um, with more guilt, right, more shame, right? Guilt says I did bad, shame says I am bad, mm-hmm. both, I both. <laughs> And um, and I would return back to use. Um, and when I heard about people in recovery coming into a hospital and um, being a, a lifeline or a bridge to services or um, just support, um, somebody who understood and cared, uh, I thought that was an amazing position. And I had heard more about it, obviously, by volunteering at CCAR and completing that internship. And job posting came up. I applied and um, interviewed well, I guess, because I was offered a position. And it was amazing because <laughs> I, I, I walked into that multiple hospitals uh, where I had been revived yes. in a different capacity, offering hope, life experience, mm-hmm. and a plan to turn this around. Sometimes I would show recoveries the pictures to offer a little credibility mm-hmm. because yeah, I'm from Middletown. You know, well, you look kind of good now, i got to <laughs> say, Kevin. So. Say it again? You look pretty good. Like, you're oh, healthy, yeah, you're you. together. So, yeah, can can they find credibility in seeing you today that yeah. you've walked their journey? Absolutely. So it, so it, it was amazing. It, it is amazing. It's it's tremendously amazing. Um, and, that, and I feel like I was making amends to that hospital where I treated the staff so poorly by um, assisting them in uh, helping the individuals that come into their uh, emergency departments uh, find recovery. And then being able to stay in contact with an individual after they've initiated their recovery mm-hmm. and help them sustain and maintain it. And then see the growth and see the lights come on. Um, and knowing that you had a hand in that and that mm-hmm. it was a gift that I received. Um, did any, go ahead. Do any of the staff, uh, rem- did they remember you? I had a staff member who was per diem nurse at that rehabilitative hospital. Yeah. She saw me, and she became so emotional in the middle of the hospital in the emergency department in the midst of COVID. She said she came, and she wrapped her arms around me and gave me a big hug. And, uh, um, and she, she had a face mask on and a shield. Um, I'm sure you were COVID yeah. safe. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was vaccinated at the time. But yeah. Yeah, I've had staff remember me. Um <laughs> I've had uh, multiple experiences in hospitals in many capacities, uh, whether it be obviously in the emergency department or on the medical floors or on the psych unit. Um, So I've run into staff members that see me and um, are shocked. Um, It's, it's, I don't know, it's amazing. So we had, um, uh, I've always known you to interview well, like you said, and you're very articulate. Uh, have you always been a good speaker, uh, good with words? So I've had the gift of gab that's got me out of a lot of jams. <laughs> yeah. Many times. Uh, yeah. So, um, 
there's also been many experiences in my life that uh, kind of shaped who I am. So I live, so with everything that I experienced in the hospital, I live with this belief that I'm playing with house money. You know I mean, <laughs> I am playing with house money. Like mm -hmm. I've been given it. Why not just be the best that I can be and, and, and strive to be um, the most accomplished? And so to get back to your question, not speaking well has been, I guess, something that, uh, might be intrinsic in me, but uh, it's been enhanced through 15 inpatient treatment centers where, you know, you're in uh, clinical settings and and you're forced to to share your emotions, which has always been a challenge for me. And so, go ahead. Yeah, so I was going to say we um, this kind of came to light when you were asked to uh, speak at a governor's press conference. Yeah. Talk yeah, that, to us about that. that was what was honor. that like? So um, the Harvard Current had reached out to us, um, and they wanted to know how people were navigating recovery in the midst of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And CCAR had um, very quickly transitioned back into the hospitals as soon as it was deemed safe enough. And we uh, were on the front lines, and we saw the impact that COVID had on people with substance use disorder and the barriers that were produced by that. And so um, a wonderful reporter kind of wanted to humanize that. And so I was uh, honored to be interviewed by her with another recovery coach. And from what I understand, based on that publication, um, the governor got wind of it and he saw it and he said, I want to meet those guys. And so very quickly, I think they coordinated a press conference at the uh, Harvard Recovery Community Center. And um, I was told, governor's going to be there. He just wants to meet you. Um, say hello and um, we met him obviously and he uh, the one thing I can say politics aside this man um, seemed like he cared mm -hmm. he seemed like you know what like how are you guys doing this how can we prevent this what can we do and there's no way to maybe prevent it but what kind of resources can we throw at this situation and really just commend us for being on the front lines and and being willing to um, try to uh, instill hope in individuals that feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was sitting there, um, Susan Beisowitz, who's the lieutenant governor, said, hey, do you want to answer this question that a reporter had thrown out? And I didn't hear the question. I was kind of spacing out. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I uh, jumped up to the podium, and um, what's the best thing to do when you don't know the answer is I just shared... Um, my experience and what I do, and see and talk about CCAR and the impact that we have. And then I asked the reporter to ask the question again, mm -hmm. and he did. And it was a tough one. Um, I answered it honestly and the best of my abilities, mm -hmm. and uh, it was recognized, I'm sure. Uh, and then out of that came another opportunity to speak at the state capitol on Overdose Awareness Day, and I think that's um, that's something I want to continue to champion. Um, that people can't come back from an overdose and can recreate their lives and can embrace recovery and can be can become um, productive members of society. I can be a father mm -hmm. to my little girl that um, she looks up to and loves and respects. I'm an uncle to a little niece. Um, I, my relationships have been repaired in many ways. I mean, I'm sure it's a process and we're still, you know, um, we're early on in the journey, uh, relatively speaking, although I've been through a lot and I've mm -hmm. um, overcome a lot so far 
and I use, uh, I use a concept called the uh, cookie jar concept. And so all those painful, difficult, uh, impossible experiences that I've gone through, I just kind of take and I put in this cookie jar. And so when I'm faced with another difficult situation, I just weigh it against what I've already been through. Mm. And it allows me to walk through that situation. Um, I do it in interviews. What do I have to lose? You know, mm -hmm. uh, let me weigh it against what I've been through. You know, look at the gift that I've been given. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously there's something greater than me working in my life. This isn't my, my doing. This is me allowing God to work in my life. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm I'm excited to see what's next. I truly am. Were you nervous meeting the governor? Uh, maybe a little bit, you know what I mean? But not much, you mm -hmm. know. Like, he has to meet me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you, you know, go. So. You know, you started sharing by talking about the the patriarchal examples in your life right yeah the ones you aspired to be the ones you didn't want to be like and it seems like you are you are exactly the dad your daughter needs today yeah i'd be remiss if i didn't um really try to articulate the impact that lou senior had on me and then uh in february i got word that um well he called me prior to that and he said kevin i'm not feeling well um got a little slight fever Difficulty breathing a little bit. Where can I go get a COVID test? And so we set him up with a COVID test. We had already set him up with a vaccine appointment. His vaccine appointment was February 2nd. <clears throat> Called me, he said, Kevin, the test came back positive. I said, it's okay, we're gonna get through it. Coached him up, encouraged him, and uh, took a turn for the worse, and he, he, went, he was uh, brought to Harvard Hospital. He had COPD, and uh, he was in Harvard Hospital, and I said, I have to let this man know how much he meant to me. And, and I was blessed with an opportunity to, to spend uh, quite a bit of time with him. Hospital staff allowed me to go in. Mm -hmm. His family was, wasn't allowed. But um, the conversation that we had lasted about an hour, in which I was able to um, uh, show him the impact that he's had on my life. And, him and I would go to his uh, son's grave quite frequently, and, and we would do a lot of things around his house, um, plant flowers, New Guinean patients, and, and uh, he has this beautiful fig tree, and we would talk about that in the hospital, and um, he, was, he was ventilated, and he passed away on February 2nd, the day that his vaccine was scheduled, and um, CCAR had... Uh, embraced me through that process and I was able to feel those emotions and be an asset and um, I was mentioned honored to be mentioned in his obituary as a second son and I was a pallbearer at the funeral although I had a surgery um, the next day to try to repair the, the residual effects of that overdose to my leg um, so I had crutches and walked next to the casket but um, I went and I bought some New Guinean patients last week and I'm playing them mm -hmm. Yeah. And I bought a fig tree. I don't even like figs, but <laughs> I bought a fig tree and I got a planter from his house that I put it in. It's remembrance of him. How incredible that by being an emergency department recovery coach, you're able to be probably the only loved one that he was able to see at that time. And His family was incredibly grateful because he was able to have some human connection. Yeah. with somebody that he loved. And he said, I walked in, he said, I can't believe it. <laughs> they let you in. 
Yeah. And I said, well. Can't believe it either. I'm here. You get into all kinds of places. Yeah. So, uh, well, I love that you're leaking, and I know that the leaking is love. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, that you've let love in, finally. And it shows in, in the way you operate. I mean, the way you are today. So we had, um, you served for quite a while as an emergency department recovery coach. Do you know how many people you've seen in the emergency department? Close roughly? to 300. And, and that was with COVID, obviously, oh, so those numbers were skewed. Um, yeah, in about a year or so? And 300 in the ripple effect yeah. with the family members of oh, still staying in contact. So, so to me, that's remarkable. Yeah. But we recently, you in, introduced yourself, we recently looked for somebody to coach the coaches, yeah. right? Yeah. And you applied and mm-hmm. interviewed and tell us what that process was like and what you're doing today. So I was sent home with that, recovering from that surgery and Lou had just passed away yeah. and I saw the posting. And I said, no, what would Lou say? He said, he say, go ahead and apply. I know, and you held it, You always said in the interview, you held it close to your chest. You I didn't did. tell I didn't too tell many anybody, people. Yeah. I didn't expect it to get hired, but I know that <laughs> CCAR allows their employees to get a face-to-face interview for any position that they apply for. Mm-hmm. And so I said, why not garner a little bit more experience in, mm-hmm. in the interview setting? <clears throat> so the next position that comes up that I might be interested in, I'll have a little more comfortability. That was my intention. Mm-hmm. And so I applied, and I met with Phil mm-hmm. and Rebecca and Jennifer. And uh, Phil gave a, an excellent analogy of uh, the EDRC, uh, EDRC team compared to the Golden State Warriors, who, mm-hmm. who won three championships. Right. And um, how do you coach coaches? Right? And so uh, the correlation is um, the Golden State Warriors are coached by Steve Kerr, who is a former player. So he had the perspective of a player coaching coaches. But if you back up, that team was built by a gentleman named Mark Jackson, who was also a player, mm-hmm. and he would coach coaches. And so my philosophy would be, let's accent the strengths of the coaches. But looking at it, why not build up some of the weaknesses of the coaches and mm-hmm. build them up to their uh, full uh, capacity? And um, I don't know, in the interview, Maybe I sold myself well, and I was blessed with an opportunity to be in that role. So now I'm Steve Kerr because I have a ready-made team that was built by Mark Jackson, and I have an unbelievable framework to operate within. And um, so coaching coaches is is something where you still utilize the principles of recovery coaching. right? I still actively listen. I still discover and manage my own stuff because there's a lot to manage um, and ask good questions. Mm-hmm. And I treat the coaches as the experts of their own career and their own lives mm-hmm. as resources. Um, so it's been it's been a change of pace. It's been rewarding, and it's it's not that direct connection that I have in an emergency department with a recovery, but I have a hand in that. And just as if uh, the metaphor of CCAR being a tree mm-hmm. with the roots being the administration and the trunk being leadership and the branches being the people with direct contact that see the fruit being born. I kind of maybe in the middle of that branch. So I get to um, have contact with the individual, many individuals who are having multiple contacts with multiple people, changing a multitude of lives in many ways, either um, people seeking recovery or family members or allies or uh, society as a whole. So it's it's an amazing, so when I use that perspective and, and I've had to shift my perspective in many ways 
Uh, I'll give you an example. I was um, in that rehabilitative hospital in, in physical therapy, and I was limping to a pool to do aqua therapy, and I was feeling sorry for myself because I had this cane, and I was living back with my mother, and I couldn't drive, and I couldn't work, and I felt emasculated for sure. And as I was limping to the pool, I looked to my left, and there's a gentleman about my age who had no legs, and, um, and it shifted my perspe perspective. And I said, I have the ability to uh, limp, at least. And, um, and mm. that gentleman with no legs could shift his perspective that he still has breath and he still has a heartbeat and he can still make an impact on others. And, uh, and when I look at um, coaching coaches with a different perspective, that this is a uh, program that is changing lives mm -hmm. and I have a hand in it, it allows me to really look at the big picture. And, uh, yeah, it's... It's an excellent opportunity. I'm blessed and grateful. And if I say the, the challenge with Steve Kerr is like if you're coaching a Steph Curry, right, how are you going to make Steph Curry better? What yeah. are you going to suggest to him? Why don't you shoot three-pointers with your left hand? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> or something. You yeah. only got a right-handed yeah. shot. But <laughs> you, you you're, could, you're absolutely. searching for straws, but... Hey, we acknowledge their strengths, right? We yeah. acknowledge their strengths. And Steve Kerr's still looking at stats, and he's comparing stats to the last year, and he's yeah. saying, Steve, or Steph, in this area, you, you know, you're slacking a little bit. You could pick it up. Yeah. You know, and so I have a lot of ways in which I can help keep coaches accountable. I have a lot of data points that I can look at, and I can encourage coaches to be the best versions of themselves and remember the reason why they took this job and the mm -hmm. purpose that they, uh, that they have that they mm -hmm. to serve. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been amazing. You know, it's been amazing. When you think about just three, four years ago when we started to see over 12,000 individuals in an emergency department, there, there's not another program that I know of that comes close to those types of, that, that, that impact, because it's, it's impossible almost to measure as well. It's remarkable. You can't quantify it. Yeah, and, and we're st we don't feel like we're working our way out of a job either right. because our, our emergency departments are still inundated right. with people that need help. Even more so with the effects of COVID and mm -hmm. COVID exacerbating um, mm -hmm. substance use disorder and mental mm -hmm. health. It's, there's a need, a huge need for what we do. And, and I'm glad that um, Phil had that vision when he was tossed the beeper by smoking the cab driver. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And, um, and he saw the impact that she can have uh, in an emergency department so setting. So I guess the last question, uh, Sandy's kind of gave me the eyes, like, are you going to like, are we going to like wrap this up? But I could talk with Kevin for a while. Are you giving me those eyes? <laughs> no. Um, how do you take care of yourself today? What's your recovery look like? Yeah, my recovery tapestry. Yeah. Um, you know what? Uh, it, recovery isn't something I do. It's obviously it's life to mm -hmm. me. It's something I incorporate mm -hmm. in my life. And so recovery to me looks like waking up, asking for help, um, recognizing my role as a father, helping my daughter, reading recovery literature, reaching out to a person in recovery on a regular basis, on a daily basis, and trying to live with integrity. I still um, am a member of that 12-step fellowship. I still attend meetings on a fairly regular basis. I still have a sponsor. Yesterday I was at dinner with nine gentlemen all in long-term recovery, um, and I was acknowledged as a miracle. And look at Kevin's here with us. And it was my sponsor's 36th year anniversary, <laughs> and the focus was not me for, for, for a hot minute. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really uh, humbled by that for sure. Um, so just staying engaged, helping others, serving others is, is a big piece of it um, for me. It has to be. It has to be. Mm -hmm. uh, I had an opportunity yesterday where there was a, 
a recovery that we saw that had no transportation to a level of care, and there was um, there's really nobody available that I could have take her without really disrupting the schedule. So I said, you know what, I'll go get her. Hmm. And I went and picked her up at Mid-State Hospital, and um, we brought her down to New Haven, and uh, was able to coach her on the ride, and she, how incredibly grateful she was. And, and whether or not she takes it and she applies it isn't, mm-hmm. is, isn't really the point. I made the effort. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I'm and I'm going to continue making that effort in in every way possible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for me, recovery is uh, striving towards enhancement in my global health. Mm-hmm. You know, in my in my relationships and my spirituality, and that's a, that's an area of my life that I've continued to uh, explore and really try to um, embrace. And that's the foundation of my recovery is rooted in in my uh, relationship with God. And, and how I treat others. So that's my recovery tapestry. And how old's your little girl now? She'll be four in September, and she's a joy. Yeah. And she never has to know the person that I was, mm. and mm-hmm. she'll never see that. And I actually have an opportunity to be better than I may have been had I never had a substance use disorder um, because of what I've persevered through Absolutely. and what I've experienced. So it's amazing. Now, and the grace that I've been given and the grit that I've had to apply has allowed me to live in a home, um, a nuclear home with my daughter's mother and my daughter, and I can plant New Guinean patients and have mm-hmm. a fig tree and, and um, mow the grass and <laughs> take care of responsibilities that I never thought were possible when I was living in a car yeah. or living in a motel in the Berlin Turnpike or had nowhere to go and felt completely hopeless and just wanted to, hardest thing I ever had to do was continue to live when I wanted to die, mm-hmm. and I wanted to die for a long time, and I felt empty inside with no sense of purpose and today that's not the case far from it and you're changing that whole generational absolutely unwellness without a doubt and even my relationship with my father is is improved and I, I've had to find forgiveness um, and acceptance that you know uh, it is what it was and uh, he's made changes in his life too so I have a request of you yeah how old are you 30 37 30 month I want you to consider something. Sure. Uh-oh. That. Brace yourself. Um, the year you're 55, I want you to consider walking the Appalachian Trail. Ah. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Why does he have to wait? No, he doesn't have to wait. He's got a kid, small kids at home, but I just, I want him to consider it because con- considering his legs and his body and his non-ability to walk and years of recovery by then I think you would be it would be an amazing journey and something to look forward to just to consider it thank you for that smart goal I'll try to well it's a a ways out yeah but I just plant I planted a seed thank you yeah because do you think you could do it no but all I I have to do is start no I know but I yeah I your, think I can start. Your retention is extraordinary. <laughs> I admire your brain so much. There was not a lot of damage done, let me tell you. You're retaining so much. Or maybe things. that was the damage that all of a sudden enhanced his retention. I don't know. Kevin, uh, I just am uh, so proud that uh, you're a member of our staff and that you found us or CCAR found you. Mm. Um, I only have one word for you. What's that word? Continue. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It was great getting to know you. You as well. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. 
For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.